Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28-2-23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host. And, you know, around uh, each week at this time, we take a deep dive at politics. And every so often, we take a deep dive at a book we think that you ought to buy and read. Uh, and today we're doing both at once because our guest is Rachel Bittekoffer, who is a political scientist and election forecaster turned political strategist. Uh, her interviews and analysis have been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and more. And her new book with Aaron Murphy, Hit Him Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game, is not only on sale now, but I've been hoping somebody would write this book for a long time, and I am <laughs> super glad um, that you did. So welcome, Rachel. Yeah, I think that the fa my favorite part about writing this book and putting it out is I knew how many people would read it and find themselves chapter after chapter, page after page going, I've been saying this for years. <laughs> so, well, exactly. Good. It was very therapeutic yeah. experience um, because, you know, uh, for all our good intentions, people who are Democrats or people who are just kind of fond of democracy, um, uh, you know, end up. Uh, saying, well, it wouldn't be polite to play by the rules the other side plays on, and they go scorched earth, and we end up going, hey, wh what happened around us here? And you've got uh, uh, an antidote, and I think it's the right antidote 
so congratulations. But let me begin by saying congratulations. Oh, thank you. This is this is a mission book. It really is um, about a team that is committed to saving democracy and understands we have no more time for the pivot. The pivot was, should have been five years ago. It should have been 10 years ago when Republicans started to um, use hyperbolic rhetoric to win elections. And now we're out of time. So 2024, 2022, we have to save democracy and it's time to hit them where it hurts when they go low. Right. Absolutely right. And, um, you know, one of the points that we try to make here on our uh, Thursday politics podcast is that you can't rely on professional campaigns to be doing this work. Everybody's got to be doing this work. Everybody has a platform in this world of social media. And so everybody needs to understand the ground rules. And I think one of the great things about your book is that you explain where we are, explain how we got here, explain what the ground rules are. Uh, And so I think, you know, it should be a handbook for anybody who's got a a social media account. Um, And uh, let, let let me sort of break it down and go into a couple of specific questions that struck me. One of the things that you talk about in the book is how big the role of partisanship has become in our political system, right? And that, you know, in fact, I saw you on Morning Joe and you were saying, well, if you tell me what somebody's political party is, I can tell you how they're going to vote nine times um, out of 10. Um, but with, with the, the question that strikes me, and, 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 you know, it's hard to argue with that point, is when did that happen? You know, how did it become so ingrained in our identity that if you come up to me and say, you know, go Trump, then I will excuse myself from the table and move to the next day. But, you know, it's like, it's so deep. Now, you know, there are, ex- there are extremists out there, but if you're saying partisanship is the measure, then what you mean is it's, it's pervasive. When did that happen? Why did that happen? I'm so glad you started with that. No one's asked me much about this. And in the book, I, I what I, the goal of the front half of the book is to bring people into my brain, a trained political scientist who spent years in a dissertation and then years of teaching and research on the topic of voter behavior, voter psychology, and campaigns and elections, and make you understand what poli-sci literature knows about the electorate. Because the, the entire reason I got motivated to get into election forecasting was the dearth of acknowledgement of political science fundamentals in contemporary election analysis, even on the big sites like 538 and others, right? So in to answer your question, it's always been a factor. Like, you know, the American political system is very young. It's only 200, almost about 250 years old. And we've had, you know, evolution to get to the point where we had two major parties that were called the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And even within that last hundred years or so of that party system, we've had basically the parties flip around in terms of their constituencies. The What was once the, the Democratic Party's stronghold in the South is now the Republican Party's stronghold in the South. So what political scientists wanted to know when we first started doing things like surveys and studying behavior was, you know, how, how, how informed are Americans? And so they tested people. And this is a very seminal piece of work in political science called the American voter. And what that conclusion was is like, oh, actually, most Americans don't know much at all about politics, about how the government works, about who the players are, but they have this thing that they use, a cognitive shortcut that they that, that actually lets them make smart political choices 
off of not know, even though they don't know any of these things. And that thing, David, is the party label. Okay. So it's always been very predictive of someone's voter behavior that, you know, they are a member of one of the two parties. Or in the book, I, I discuss how many of the independents are really closet partisans or soft partisans. But what happened with the age of hyperpolarization uh, and partisanship, which is, is a distinct and very important mass behavior divergence in the electorate starting in the 2000s, but really not getting going until the 2010s, is that that partisan label increased in strength so that things that election forecasters and political science, they've been doing election forecasting long before Nate Silver did, always used to predict who was going to win. Things like economic growth or unemployment rates or other what we call fundamentals, okay? And partisanship was just one of these things that were very powerful. The evolution of the last 13, 14 years has changed that, where partisan identification is extremely powerful. It's almost the only thing that explains vote choice. And since you can model partisanship by who, you know, demographics, things like black, white, educated, young, old, urban, suburban, whatever. What those demographics really are doing is telling us, is this person, especially if they're not willing to admit it, likely to be a Democrat or likely to be a Republican? Because we know at the end of the day, that's the thing that they're going to use to make their political decisions. So it's a very handy cognitive shortcut that Republicans ecosystem in the media and their campaign system figured out in about 2004 and started to use in their own strategic approach to amplify. And now we're living in the consequences of that. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm a foreign policy nerd, so I don't really know all your fancy uh, political science talk here, but, um, you know, I guess the, the next question is, is that what fucked up polling? Because, you know, you know what? What you know? It, it used to be you would get a poll and and you'd have a presidential approval rating, and it might actually have something to do with how the with president was doing, right? You right. know, it was it might have been connected to the headlines. And now, you know, people freak out and they say, "Well, Biden is at this level, forty-one percent or thirty, and you know, but that's where all those Democrats are, and and the the and Trump is where all the Republicans are, and. We don't actually, when you say to somebody, who do you want for president? Or when you say to somebody, how's the president doing? Or when you say to somebody, how do you feel about this politicized issue? You get the same number every time, but you don't get that outcome in the election. And, you know, that's where the polls have been off for the past several rounds. What explains the delta? Yeah, I mean, no, you actually are right. And you never hear any conversation about this other than on my Twitter account where I keep saying, listen, guys, all we're measuring now in public opinion data for the most part is latent partisanship of the electorate because the electorate, especially on the right, this isn't so true on the left, but it's it's not not true either, but especially on the left, what they're doing is 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 conditioning responses on on partisanship. And, and um, to get you guys to understand what I mean or how powerful this is, when I um, when you pull up Gallup data from January of 2021, so let's say you look from November of 2020 through January, February of 2021, what you will see is a literal flip in data on party on whether the economy is good or bad. Because under Trump, Republicans are at like 90% response rate good. 
And Democrats, some of them are honest, but, you know, they're obviously partisan, too. So they're, they're discounting some of the things that Trump did that was good on the economy. OK, when you get Joe Biden sworn in and ignore all the chaos, let's pretend it was normal. You see by February in complete separate, the, the lines completely invert. Right. I mean, it's immediate. Too, right? And that's always been true. Like I've been, you know, I've been studying that for a long time, like every four years or every presidential shift, you get this inversion. But where it's different now is, again, in that polarized era that we're in, it's a very distinct time period. That's why you can't compare the Carter years or the 80s or even the 90s to what's happening now. Now, people are much more like we didn't when 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 the United States went into the pandemic, they did a survey on the economists. And this is in your area a little bit more of, of performance handling COVID by the country's leader. And they put in, you know, the EU leaders, the New Zealand president was supposedly doing really good then. And, you know, Abe in Japan. And what you see is COVID comes in, all the other countries, you get a reaction, right? Because either that leader did well or they did poorly and the electorate responded to their performance. Through that window where you see everyone responding to active to, to stimulus, there is one line, David, that runs right through the center of the graph flat, never changes. It's us, dude. It's us. We never even registered one iota of shift in public opinion about Trump's handling of COVID, which is just incredible when you consider he was telling people to drink bleach and killing 3,000 Americans a day, right? So that's how unique this problem is to us and how strong it is to us. Yes. Well, you know, I, I say this as a compliment, uh, although it may sound that not may not sound that way at first, but you've become kind of the anti-Michelle Obama. Because Michelle Obama is like, when they go low, we go high. And you're, you know, I think your message, if and I don't want to put words in your mouth, is kind of like, well, sure, you know, own your accomplishments. But going low actually works in this environment. And by going low, I mean going negative, you know. Yes. And uh, it, 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 you, you explain that better than I can. So maybe maybe this is the time to explain it. Yeah, I mean, you know, not to pick on Michelle Obama, because there's nothing, frankly, and there's a lot of things that are special about Michelle Obama, but her thought that, you know, no matter how nasty these people get, we should maintain our integrity and dignity, I would say is, is very reflective of the average Democrat, especially working in the industry. Okay, But what I'm here to say is that when Republicans go low, we have to hit them where it hurts. Okay, And that front half of the book where I describe the heuristic of partisanship, how much it matters and all the stuff that Republicans have done. And also that most voters don't pay attention. I mean, 40% of people who could have voted in 2020 didn't even bother to vote when the rest of us felt we were in this moment of existential crisis. So getting people to understand, like people don't know anything. Right? So we have to be the ones to tell them that if we're running, if the Republicans are running campaigns that are the, the way Republicans do persuasion is very distinct. And, and I, I lay this out in the book. In 2004, they dabble in it. By 2010, they institutionalize it. They don't do median voter theorem persuasion. Oh, David, you're here and here and here on policy. I am to vote for me and I have a great qualification background. You can trust me. Republicans don't do that anymore at all. What they do in persuasion messaging is tell people the Democrats are crazy socialists. When they're going to turn your boy girls, <laughs> boys into girls, right? Like it's very much not selling them. It's pushing that swing bucket away from voting for us. 
And so that's the transition that we have to learn how to make. So it's not just about negativity, because Democrats have always run negative ads. They just never run any effective negative ads. They're always about corruption and shit that people, all voters think everybody's corrupt, number one. And also, they don't see the personal effect of corruption on them. So the, with the Republic, it's not just that we're trying, we're getting rid of this base message versus the, the persuasion message and these two separate universes like the Republicans do and putting in one message that both motivates the base, your independents that lean with you and pushes those swing voters away from voting Republicans. We're doing that for, you know, in a way that is tying a threat to the voter, not to some other out group that they may or may not care about because humans are wired for in-group tribalism. So we got to hit people and tell the you know, women, especially women in like states like California, the Republican Party is going to pass a national abortion ban and leave you nowhere to run. Right? <laughs> like it isn't, hey, woman in a safe blue state in a safe blue place, you should go and show up and vote because your sister in Alabama is threatened. Okay. Like that's what the liberal probably the impulse would be to message on this because we care about others and we think everyone cares about others. No one cares about others except for <laughs> super duper liberals. Almost everybody is in, is more introspective. And that's why it's not just about making the strategic pivot. It's about the type of messaging you're pushing out, making it personalized, hyperbolic, not Republicans plan to slash social security or cut social security. Republicans are coming to steal your retirement. Right. And and that becomes strong. And also, you know, you talk about going negative as you can specifically on different candidates. You know, it strikes me, though, in, in, in reading it and listening to you talk, that we've essentially entered a period, and it began with Ronald Reagan, I think, and, you know, what I consider um, the, the first big lie, which is government is your enemy, right? And, and, and you know, they, they found that that kind of worked for reasons you've just alluded to. And we've gotten to the point, we've seen it this week as kind of the apotheosis of this, where they're actually against getting anything done. They're, you know, they're all about having something to run against. They're all about, you know, how are they going to be negative on the Democrats? Uh, and, and, you know, these other issues, you know, Democrats are like, but, but we'll do your border deal. You know, well, I mean, we'll give, it's a giveaway too, right? I mean, who would have ever thought Democrats would ever say, we'll give you massive border security investment with no amnesty for anyone. <laughs> right? And, 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 amazing. and yeah. right. And yet, b- because we now have a country full of people who are pro government and anti government and politicians who are you know, political leaders in the traditional sense, and then a whole party of what I would call anti-politicians. You know, they're, they, it's, it's like matter and anti-matter. They're out to destroy the institutions, um, destroy the value base underlying the institutions, attack anything with, you know, they're like, you know, it, you know a, a, a sort of an, a, an immune system that's gone mad to go to a different kind of Metaphor where it just will attack anything that works in 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 the in the in the body politic and so um, Democrat but the, the impulse you know I go to meetings with fancy Democrats in Washington and you know in the administration and stuff and they're like well here's our agenda and we have an agenda and they don't have an agenda and 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 you know back in the Hillary Clinton days it was like well. 
here's a white paper and it's got 91 points in favor, you know, and, and they don't have that long white paper. And, um, you know, to me, the, the, the sort of essential message of your book is you've got all the Democrats. The issue is how are you going to pick up any votes? And if you're going to pick up a vote, the way you've got to do is bump them off of their candidate, yes. move them away from it. Not the candidate, the party, right? But yes, the candidate is not. So like in the Democratic campaigns, the candidate is alone almost, centralized, the focal. In Republican campaigns, the candidate is part of a team. That team is the Republican team. That team is good. And the uh, opposition no matter who they are, they could be Joe Biden, and you know they're they're about, you know they're going to say they that he wants to defund the police. He's a socialist, and his guilt by association is that he's also a Democrat. Yeah, and that's you know I mean, why did the evangelicals become the base of the Republican Party? Because their theology is the same theology as the Republican Party's theology, right. and it it, it just kind of works for them. Of course, right. it goes to extremes. Then, you know, people saying, well, you know, Trump was chosen by Jesus and God wanted Mike Johnson to be Moses. Right. I mean, we've gotten a little loony in all of that. Right. Um, yeah. We're not going to pick those up, but it does get us to another point of, of the book, which is presumably, and you addressed this slightly a moment ago, but I'd like to go a little deeper. Presumably, independents are less, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of attached to to one one side or the other. It's le- their identity comes from being independent to some degree. How do you pick them up, or is it as as I think you indicated earlier, a mirage? No, it's not a mirage. I mean, the swing bucket is important. You got to win the independent vote, and you know that's why with all this doomsaying in the polling, I'm still very confident. A, the hard data, the special elections keep coming out really hot for Dems, and they have since. Dobbs was repealed, but also because, you know, at the end of the day, like you've got a, you know, in polling 30, 40% of any poll who claim to be independent and you separate out the leaners because you ask them, well, do you lean one way or the other? And when, and now when a good pollster does data, they group all the partisan leaners into the partisan camp and keep them out of the pure independent poll. Okay. So now we're talking about 15%, not 30, taking half the, half the Indies away. What is going to motivate those people is is narrative imagistics, right? And so when you when you when you say, oh, they're proudly, there are people like that. My mother-in-law, she is so well researched and she's completely, you know, da da da. And and she couldn't be rationalized and appealed to, but that's not really typical. Most independents are actually very low information voters. They feel an obligation to civically participate because they were socialized into civic participation, maybe from military or whatever it was, but they don't feel the interest that fires ideology that puts you into a camp. Do you see what I'm saying? And so really they're tuned out and they're going to tune in and what will matter and dictate their vote is that final narrative that they hear. And if that narrative is coming from the right, don't vote for Joe Biden. He's a socialist who's going to, you know, do all these, he's going to steal all your money or whatever it is. He's going to let your family get murdered by brown people. That's what their messaging is. I'm not being hyperbolic, right? Then, um, and, and, and our message is, we passed a, a historic infrastructure bill and did this and this and this and got you $35 insulin. I'm here to tell you folks which the brain is going to respond to. 
it ain't going to be your wonky deliverables, right? So although it's important to define, because there is a perception of ineptitude that the Republicans have been careful to to uh, perpetuate by blocking action on things like immigration, there's a perception that Biden hasn't done a lot when the record speaks a whole different truth, right? So you can't ignore credit claiming, but it's not an, it's not an ends and a means. It's, it's In other words, it's necessary, but it is not sufficient. You have to go in and make sure that independent voters in Wisconsin, in Arizona, in Georgia, Georgia, walk into that ballot booth. And when they look at the ballot and they see D, they think democracy. Okay. <laughs> like they think, okay, I've got to vote for this, this party, this brand, because this is the brand that's going to protect my freedom. And it, it, it relies on all the swing races from the state legislative, House, Senate, governor's presidency to make that narrative a cacophony. And that's why it takes total buy-in. We've already got buy-in from the top. The Biden-Harris campaign is going to run an effective referendum campaign. They're going to give the electorate a choice. They're going to do a referendum on Trump's crazy and remind people what, it's, what, it, what it was like and what it will be like when he's a dictator. But at the end of the day, it takes the rest of us, as you were alluding to, to be hammering that as well. If we want to create a noise that can even somewhat take on the cacophony that they're able to make with their ecosystem, media ecosystem. We do not have a media ecosystem that is centralized and political and can be deployed for the purpose of winning campaigns, right? So we have to force the media to talk about what we want it to talk about. And what we want it to do is make sure voters are afraid of the Republican Party. Right. Although we do, you know, that we live in a different age. It's not 2016. It's not an age... You know, I know this seems recent to some people, but it is actually light years ago. Well, that's distance. It was a long time ago. The, 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 the 2016, you know, you still do big TV buys and you're trying to send a message and, on TV networks. TV networks are essentially irrelevant right now. It's, you know, if somebody runs an ad, they see it on social media. Social media is the vehicle. So you, we actually have an infrastructure in place to overnight have yes. an organized message yes. delivered by a million people or 10 million people yes. that reaches 200 million people if you know if it becomes important enough for people to do it and that's why you know when i talk when i work i do a lot of pro bono on top of my paid consulting you know and what i do and that's mostly grassroots right so what i'm doing with them is saying look listen I know your issue is climate change, okay? But it falls under this democracy dictatorship threat. There's not going to be any help for the earth under a Trump um, dictator. So getting Democrats out of like their very distinct camps because they're a very activist-based group. It's not an ideological movement like the Republican Party is. And forming an umbrella ideology, freedom, right? To, uh, to kind of bring in all these disparate things. But you're right. We have exactly what we need because- Pop culture is liberal. It has a liberal bias because it's cool. Taylor Swift has 293 million followers. That's exactly right. right. Because they are a minority, a very small minority when you get down to like the Tucker Carlson's of the world, right? But they have big, loud media voices. So if all of us could say to ourselves, yeah, my 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 passion issue is education, but right now I'm going to talk about threat to democracy and the threat of the Republican Party. And I can do that in the education context, but I'm not focusing on a policy proposal I want to push Congress to do next time. Well, guess what, guys? Every time you're doing that, A, you're detracting. You're making shit look normal that's not normal. We're in an existential crisis. 
And our only hope for survival is to make sure that average Americans who watch The Bachelorette and have never heard of Joe Scarborough vote and vote for D all the way up and down the ballot because they see that D and they think democracy. Absolutely right. And you're, you know, Tucker Carlson at his biggest moment had 3 million viewers. Right. Right. And, and Taylor Swift has a hundred times that many followers, right? 200 million. (laughs) Right. So, so it's just, it's, 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 it's a, it's a real big deal. Let me push test part of what you're saying. Sure. Um, Because you've, you actually said it in, in two different ways here and slightly contradictory, although I don't, I don't think it is. And that is, you you talk about democracy, you talk about dictatorship. And those sound like kind of big highfalutin ideas. Now, the fact that Trump wants to be a dictator should never be normalized. And, you know, Biden and Harris and everybody else should be running against them. But what I've seen, and and I'm I'm a, a part of the group that actually thinks Kamala Harris is extremely effective. And what I've seen in her on the road when she is effective, is she's going in and saying, you're a woman, they're taking away a fundamental right of yours. And when you go into another group and you say, you want to marry who you choose, they're not going to let you marry who you choose. Or, um, uh, you know, we, we, we we can break it down and should break it down into the rights that are going to go yes. away. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, in the middle of this election year, quite apart from all the trials and everything else, um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for your existence on Twitter because, Aww. you know, you're one of those those people who I find, uh, uh, you know, shares my breakdowns. You and I both simultaneously at a – Clarence Aww. Thomas is kicking off this hearing today. You know, oh. moment, which yeah, is you know, know kind right? of like what the fuck, but 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 it seems to me the more specific you can make the the yes. fear yes. with the audience, the more you can say because that's what happened to a lot of women. They were like, "Well, what yes. could go wrong?" And then all of a sudden, they no longer controlled their rights, and so yes, a bunch yes. of suburban women and a bunch of people who supported Trump in 2016 said, right. "No more." And right, every right. single one of the polling events that's taken place since then, the Democrats have outperformed by five, six, seven percent. Yeah. Because those people said, oh my God, now yeah. I see. Yes. Isn't that core? Yeah, no, to that's this? exactly it. So like when, you know, I think like, I don't know, maybe um I'm not a very literal person now that I've raised an autistic child. I understand how some people are very literal about language. Okay. So when the Biden campaign says they're going to run on a democracy theme, that doesn't mean they're going to talk about democracy in an abstract concept. It definitely means, as, as you're seeing with the stump stuff from, from Kamala Harris, it's about taking that to be concrete. And I acknowledge in the book, you know, the strategic shift with the party starts in time for 2022 and, and help blunt that mid, mid, that red wave. But I say in the book, I could, we could have done these things though, without the issue of Dobbs repeal to make what it means to lose freedom, the threat of freedom from the Republican Party, from an abstract concept or threat to an actual tangible concrete, like a DAC, it was it was the literally the manna from heaven. Like that, if they wanted to, you know, seize power and put in an autocracy, the worst thing that could have happened to them was Dobbs, because it has 
it has allowed us to define what it means to lose freedom. And so we talk about Roe. I, I, you saw my Twitter. You probably know all through 22 since Roe repeal. I'd be like, you must wedge Roe, 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 and not define it about choice and reproductive freedom and women's health care. Okay, whoopty shit. No, describe it as freedom. Right? <laughs> like these people have, they, these big government Republicans, because you guys, I mean, Republicans prime the pump for us for 50 years turning people against the government, we might as well use that brand against them and make people afraid of a Republican in your bedroom making decisions on whether you're going to live or die, right? And it has to be that kind of um, you know, messaging, not, con- not stuff about women in red states, not stuff about poor women, because yes, they're going to suffer the most, guys, but where we should represent um, are, are uh, people who are most vulnerable and most marginalized in the society, like trans people, is not in our messaging to win elections. Okay, we could that is that's cross purpose, right? We should be designing messaging that does the job of moving voters to the polls for us and making sure they don't vote for Republicans. And if that's best done, it's focused very laser-like on Dobbs repeal and abortion and re- and loss of freedom to describe threat to democracy and make that tangible, then that is how you do it, right? And so, you know, to me, when you look and lay out in, mid- in the midterms, the places that ran this new strategy, Michigan, Arizona, how great those candidates did. And then I lay out the old school strategy. It's nothing new about it. It was ran in 2010 by Democrats, 2014, 2018, 26, whatever. It is the sell the candidate discount, you know, I'm not one of those Democrats. I'm bipartisan. I'm moderate. Look at my biography. And they all got hammered. And not only did they lose David, they all lost to MAGA extremists, to JD Vance, who's like an out and out fascist. Um, you know, so like those voters obviously never got the message that they are facing an extremism threat from the Republican party. They are not going to know that. When many people, all they know about Republicans right now, may know Trump, but they think Republican, they think good for the economy, good on national defense. That's all they know. They don't know who any political politicians yeah, quite, are. Quite, quite apart from the fact that both of those things are not are only true. demonstrably wrong. Right. Definitely they're demonstrably wrong. Profoundly yet, wrong. Yeah. Like you can see this in polling data. Just last week, I was watching them report on like, look at this advantage Trump has on the economy. Well, that's issue ownership. Okay. And so if we want people to know that the Republican party is an extremist cult, because we know it and we see it, we're going to have to bring in those people who are not looking at any of this and make sure they know it. And everywhere they ran on that, defining the Republican as an extremist, as a threat to people's freedom, we cleaned it up. And if we can put that into the swing map, from the state legislative races on up to the House, to the Senate, to the governor, to the presidency in 2024, we might just be able to save ourselves. Right. And I, you know, I mean, I think it would be helpful for Democrats and, you know, we can all get this message out in different kind of ways. And I wish we could go on and on, but, you know, we don't have unlimited time, but, <laughs> well, but, but we, it would be helpful. Yes, definitely say they're anti-democratic. De- definitely say they're uh, you know, gonna they, they want to elect a guy who has said he will be a dictator on day one. They definitely say that, but then depending on the audience that you're in, recognize that the Republicans have given us seven, eight, nine issues that you can go with and say, uh, you, you know, you are a woman and you want to have control over your body. They are taking away your right to do that. 
You are a person of color and you want to be able to vote. They're taking away your right to do that. You are a member of the LGBTQ plus community and you want to marry who you want to marry. They're taking away yes. your right to marry that and person. And you see how you're coming back to freedom? So like I said- They're, they're all freedoms that are yeah, being taken away. Reframing, right? Yeah. Right. You, you, you have you know, an, an immigrant um, who is not documented at the moment. They're going to put them in a concentration camp. Yes. They're going to take away their fundamental freedoms. You want your kids to go to school and be free from fear. They are inserting, you know, guns and fear into your, your, your schools. They want to subsidize the rich with your money. They want yes, a foreign money. policy right. that helps enemies who want to destroy us. But, yes. you know, each one of these things then becomes a concrete point. Do you, I mean, do you agree with me, me whether it's that's? Yes, and exactly. And so like if we can get, so right now the problem is these conversations are happening, but only in progressive media, right? And MSNBC is, you know, one of those. And I love MSNBC, as you know, I'm, a, I'm big on that, that channel. But fact is very few people ever watch it, okay? So where these conversations, where these interviews have to be happening is on NBC Nightly News and The View and The Today Show. And if you have any hope of penetrating your average American who, again, has no idea who Kevin McCarthy yeah, is. Yeah, although, you know, the, it, it also, I got, I got to say, just because this is my hobby horse and I run a little new media company, um, you know, we're a little new media company and we started up and we have a million, a million and a half downloads every month. And each one of those people then has a platform and they can yep. amplify what they're hearing. Some of the other ones, whether it's, you know, Pod Save America, the crooked media people, or uh, Midas Touch, you know, the Mizellus brothers or whatever, they, they have tens of millions of followers or YouTube followers and so forth. And, you know, that's much bigger than MSNBC yes. or CNN or the NBC yes. Nightly News. Um, or most mid-season NFL games, you know, it's it's a lot. Well, maybe and not so, the NFL, but everything. Well, else. the mid-season. I'm just saying mid-season. Not the, okay, not, mid-season, the, not the playoff. Commanders versus the Browns. I got. Yeah, you. that's pretty there. pretty awful. <laughs> but 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 yes, I mean, so that 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 gets us there. Well, look, um, at, you know, as I said, uh, every once in a while, we pick somebody who's written a book that we think uh, that everybody ought to buy, ought to read, hit them where it hurts, how to save democracy by beating Republicans at their own game is by Rachel Bittekoffer with Aaron Murphy. Uh, It's in bookstores now. It can be a handbook for how you handle your communications for the rest of the year. Um, It's not about somebody else. It's about you. And that's why I think you need to read it. And that's why I'm so great, grateful to Rachel for coming here. And that's why I hope she comes back some point in the future so we can keep the conversation going. But for now, thank you, Rachel. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And bye-bye.